0: forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious."
1: Amen, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you. You are so good to us. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people this morning. We thank you for your word. God, would you speak to us now? Would you give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church? Through these ancient words, this prophecy of the coming of Christ that we remember all year but especially uh, during this Advent season. And we pray that the peace he brings might increasingly characterize our lives our church, our city, our state, our country, and our world. Yeah, this is far beyond our capability. And so we ask that you would um, accomplish your will in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This Advent season, we are looking at Uh, these ancient prophecies of Isaiah, uh, prophecies for Isaiah foretelling the coming of Christ. Um, It's a rear view mirror for us, but for Isaiah, he was writing about 750 years before the birth of Christ, uh, foretelling events that would take place uh, much later. And this morning, we're thinking in particularly about um, Jesus bringing peace into our world. And so, To help us think about and kind of provide context for that, I wanna ask you if you can remember what you were doing on February 24th. February 24th, 2022 um, was the day that Russia invaded Ukraine. Nine months, one week, and four days ago. That's a long time. Um, In that time period, we've done a lot of things. I moved halfway across the country, got a new job, became your pastor, (laughs) Um, none of that was on my mind in February. We've all done many things uh, in that time period and it just sort of highlights uh, the length of um, the violence, the oppression, the injustice going on almost 10 months uh, in Ukraine. That's nothing compared to what's happening in other parts of the world, though. Uh, Yemen has been in a civil war for eight years. Libya has fought two civil wars since 2011, depending on how you count. Uh, Syria has been involved in a civil war for 11 years. In Nigeria, Boko Haram has been carrying out terrorist attacks and kidnapping, kidnapping school-aged girls for over 11 years. Uh, in Myanmar, there has been a civil war for 60 years. The Council on Foreign Relations has a website where they call, they call the Global Conflict Tracker, where in total they are tracking 27 instances of conflict around the world. Um, many of which don't fill our headlines anymore. They categorize each of those 27 conflicts according to whether the situation is improving, remaining the same, or getting worse. Out of 27 conflicts around the world, not one is categorized as improving. According to a a report published this summer by the United Nations Refugee Agency, over 100 million people are currently displaced worldwide as a result of persecution, violence, conflict or human rights violations. 100 million people, did I say that right? 100 million people. The largest number of people displaced at any time in human history. Uh, that's larger than the, company, uh, the country of Germany. If the entire displaced population of our planet right now were a country, it would be the 14th largest country. That's pretty staggering, isn't it? Okay, so take a breath and contrast that with um, something very different. In um, his book, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, Bill Bryson talks about growing up in post-World War II middle America. And he talks about it being just um, a time of prosperity, a time where things were relatively peaceful and stable. And I just wanna read you a paragraph from this book. Um, He says this, he says, I can't imagine there ever being a more gratifying time or place to be alive than America in the 1950s. No country had ever known such prosperity. When World War II ended, the United States had $26 billion worth of factories that hadn't existed before the war, $140 $140 billion in savings and war bonds just waiting to be spent, no bomb damage, and practically no competition. All that American companies had to do was stop making tanks and battleships and start making Buicks and Frigidaire's, and boy, did they. By 1951, almost 90 percent of American families had refrigerators, and nearly three quarters had washing machines, telephones, vacuum cleaners, and gas or electric stoves—things that most of the world would, uh, most of the rest of the world, could still only fantasize about. Americans owned 80% of the world's electrical goods, controlled two-thirds of the world's productive capacity, produced more than 40% of its electricity, 60% of its oil, and 66% of its steel. The 5% of people on Earth who were Americans had more wealth than the other 95% combined. Okay, so those are two very different pictures (laughs) of what it has uh, felt like and looked like to be alive over the last 50 or 60 years. And the reason that I bring all of that up is to say that when we're talking about peace, I think there are a couple dangers for us. Uh, the, the first is to think that when the Bible talks about peace, uh, it's addressing something like what to do when you get into a busy parking lot at the grocery store and there's, not an, uh, there's no more parking spots left. And you have to like, bite your tongue and circle for a little, like something that doesn't really isn't hard, right? Or, or that when the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about like some vague feeling of inner calm. And I lay out those two scenarios to say that what the Bible's talking about is something far more important than that. These two scenarios are backgrounds um, one being that there is a lot of conflict in our world that seems to be getting worse, and the other being that sure, life has had its challenges, but it's also been pretty stable, and real violence and conflict for many of us has tended to exist on the other side of an ocean. Um, is important for us to think about because this is the world into which God became man. Not into some theoretical world, not into some abstract world, not into some world where Everybody's getting along pretty well on their own. It's into the darkness of this world that God became a man. And it's into this world in which, and it's this world in which we as his followers affirm that he is still the Prince of Peace. That's what Advent is about. And while one or the other of those two scenarios may take a bigger role in our imagination about what the world is like, or might resonate with us more, the reality is that we have a long way to go before we can say that we are at peace in our world. Uh, We know over the past couple years that it seems like polarization has gotten worse in our country. There's an organization called Braver Angels which is committed to uh, fostering bipartisan Conversations, a national movement to build bridges across partisan divides on college campuses and in communities and in institutions and in media companies. Just before the last presidential election, Braver Angels held a poll in which 70% of Americans said that if the wrong president were elected, America would never recover. Think about that the wrong president is elected, 70% of Americans believe the country will never recover from that. So it's clear that we're living in a world that is deeply divided. It's clear that we're living in a world where enmity and strife, where conflict and violence are a reality. And the reality, I think, for many of us is that we're just so tired of it. And so we can get angry or we can just choose to opt out. But we long for something different. And I think that's the reality for most of us alive today. But, but there's an additional layer I think that we need to take seriously as Christians. And that is the reality that as Christians, as the Church of Christ, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, Which is beautiful. It's staggering though. Um, Because we have been reconciled to God, because we are at peace with God, God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's who we are to be. That's stunning. That's stunning. Collectively, we are to extend the peace of God in this world that is filled with conflict. And so, Having said all that, what I'd like to do this morning is explore this beautiful passage in Isaiah 11 because it, it shows us what the peace of God that Christ brings into the world at his advent looks like. And so I just want to ask two questions uh, of this passage. Um, what does God's promised peace look like? And then how does God's promised peace come So first, what God's promised peace looks like. So about 750 years before the birth of Christ, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, God gives his people this glimpse of peace that the Messiah will bring. And there are two aspects to the peace that uh, that Christ brings, that, that the Messiah will bring that this passage highlights for us. Uh, The first, just briefly, is to say that it is not a shallow or a surface level peace. If you look at verses three and following, Isaiah writes, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, when it says that he will not judge by what his eye sees or decide disputes by what he hears, what it means is that the Messiah will establish peace that does not ignore the cause of justice. It means that the Messiah will not judge based on external ex- uh, appearances. It's not just the, the, the first thing that is said, the initial appearance. It won't be a casual, cursory piece. It's saying that absolute righteousness will be the standard of God's justice. God's promised peace will take justice absolutely serious. It's not a peace that comes by uh, turning a blind eye and looking the other way. And I think that that's really important because the the point here is this. uh, It is entirely possible to live with something that feels a bit like peace um, just by not asking hard questions. Uh, It's entirely possible to live with a superficial peace that only exists because nobody is really serious about what's really going on. For example, the entertainment industry lived with a superficial piece for a long, long time before Harvey Weinstein was exposed. And after that happened, it, it, it sort of became known that everybody knew it was going on. Right? It was a surprise to absolutely nobody that men in power use their positions of authority to abuse others. Everybody knew it and the same thing happens in other places, including the church. And it's easy to live with a superficial peace if we avoid honest conversations, if we avoid asking hard questions, if we avoid the regular rhythm of confession, if we never come to each other and say, you said something last week that hurt me. Or maybe I misunderstood what you meant, could you help me understand? It's easy to live with a superficial peace if we avoid asking each other for forgiveness. It's possible to live with a superficial peace, but that peace is a house of cards and God condemns it in the strongest possible language. About 100 years after the prophet um, Isaiah wrote these words, Jeremiah, uh, through Jeremiah God condemns the shepherds of Israel, saying, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. God hates it when we say that everything's great and we know it's not. And so the peace that Jesus brings isn't just uh, kindness. I mean, God is kind, but it isn't just sort of a gentility or a avoiding of awkward topics of conversation. No, it's a much deeper uh, peace. Okay, so that's what this passage says negatively about what the peace that Jesus brings does not look like, but Then it tells us what peace actually looks like. What does true peace really look like? So um, look with me again at verses six through eight. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Uh, That's describing a depth of peace um, that is counter to nature. Let's say it like that. Uh, Isaiah's describing God's promised peace as looking like peace between animals that are innately in conflict with one another. Um, As you know, my family moved here a few months ago and so often on the weekends, we're just exploring the Central Coast and a couple of weeks ago, we were driving up Highway 1, uh, is it called PCH still in this part of the state? I don't know, but uh, driving up Highway 1 north of Cayucas, up towards Hearst Castle and we're driving uh, north on Highway 1 and Ashley is talking to me and all of a sudden I go, stop! She said, what, and I said, there are zebras over there. There's a pack of zebras by Hearst Castle. Um, Did not expect to see zebras um, on the central coast. And then we did whatever we did and we drove back and, and then I knew there were gonna be zebras, so on the way back I was disappointed because I'm like, why aren't there giraffes too? Like, why did William Randolph Hearst stop himself at zebras? Why not bring lions and tigers uh, to the Central Coast also? But obviously we know why, because if you bring all of these different animals together, there would only be lions at the end of the day, right? By this point, there would only be lions. Um, Because we know that lions eat zebras, they're inherently at enmity with one another. But the point is, the picture of God's promised peace is not just that they, uh, these animals um, that are at enmity innately with one another, not just that they would live near each other. I mean, if you think about where can you go and find these sorts of animals living near each other, you go to a zoo where they're all separated by gates and fences and walls. So the point isn't just that they would exist near each other, that they would coexist without destroying each other, it says that the wolf and the lamb will dwell together. The leopard and the goat are gonna cuddle up uh, with each other. A little child will lead them. Predator and prey, it is in their nature to be at odds with one another. In fact, um, predators cannot exist without being at odds with their prey, right? If they don't do violence towards their prey, they will not survive. But here, Isaiah is saying that God's peace will look like predator and prey eating together, living together, and what Isaiah is getting at is not just the absence of conflict, but the biblical word for peace, which is the Hebrew word shalom, which is not just about a cessation of hostilities, it's about the fullness of all things, it's about psychological and emotional and relational healing. It's about uh, the the peace that Isaiah is describing is peace that is as full of light as the dark of twenty seven global conflicts, instances of global conflict that I described previously is dark. It's talking about creation, living in perfect harmony with its creator and because creation is at harmony with its creator, creation is at harmony with itself. You and I at harmony together, harmony with the rest of creation. And of course, the peace that's envisioned here is not only concerned uh, with with animals, right? The peace that's envisioned here, it's a picture of people who, humanly speaking, would never have anything to do with one another, treating each other as family. It's rich and poor, it's black and white, male and female, eastern and western, urban and rural, depending on one another. It's Republicans and Democrats gathering around tables together. It's coastal elites and deplorables laughing together late into the night. It's not having our hackles raised or prejudging somebody's character based on uh, where they went to college or which newspaper they read or which cable news channel they watch. Okay, so if you're thinking that sounds impossible, then that means you're paying attention. (laughs) That's good. Because just as it is in the very nature of the wolf and the lion and the bear to be in conflict with their prey, it is also in our nature to be in conflict. James 4 says this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is... it? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James is telling us that we can't escape conflict because we bring it with us wherever we go because it doesn't come from outside of us. Uh, Conflict in our world actually comes from within us. It doesn't come from outside of us. It doesn't come because we choose a different team or a different slogan or different values. Conflict comes from within each of us. And so there's no place or no community that we can go to where conflict will not eventually find us because conflict, James tells us, stems from the passions within each one of us. Uh, That word passions, it's not things that we care a lot about. Uh, Passions in um, James, the word that that James uses for passions in the Greek is the same word for flesh or we could say uh, human desire, not skin, but like human desires earthly desires, the desire to be recognized, the desire to be approved, the desire to be uh, thought well of. None of those things necessarily in and of themselves uh, inherently evil, and yet we we were created to have these passions met by God himself. And when we give up and wander away from God, when we rebel against him, our passions are at war within us, And so we long for shalom, but instead we generate conflict. And Isaiah is telling us that Christ comes into the world to bring peace, to bring shalom, to make everything right again. So the next question then is how will God's peace come? How will that ever happen? Well, look at verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. How would it be possible for a lion and an ox to live in peace together? Only through a complete transformation of the character, the nature of both of them. Only through a complete transformation of the lion's nature in which the lion now eats hay. Uh, Lions don't eat hay. (laughs) But it would also require a complete transformation of the ox's nature. That the ox would not spook, get afraid, run from the lion. For shalom, for relational peace, for psychological peace, for a complete, uh, for, for, for peace to come, a complete transformation of nature is necessary. This is describing a change in nature that is so profound that it would be a change of instinct. It would require a change of desire. I mean, um, it's talking about kids playing near snake dens. I don't even think that's biblical. Um. (laughs) But it's in the Bible. It would require a change of instinct, a change of desire, right? Would you want your kids to be at peace Playing with snakes, I don't want that. This is the sort of peace that has come, this sort of peace coming into our world, it looks like rest instead of war. It looks like enemies solving shared problems together. It looks like both sides of uh, conflict, both sides of the aisle, both sides of um, family feuds sitting down together and reaching an agreement together. And this will only happen if we experience a transformation of our nature. And that will not happen in a natural way. It would require a supernatural intervention. And the good news is that is exactly what this passage is describing. Um, You see this if you look at verse one and verse 10. In verse one, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. But then in verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people of him shall the nations inquire. Isaiah is saying that the promised Messiah, the one who will come to bring peace into the world, is both the shoot from the stump of Jesse and also the root of Jesse. Okay, stay with me for a second, what does that mean? When Isaiah is writing here, it's a really, really dark time for God's people. And Isaiah is saying that um, it, it, it's such a dark point in, in the history of God's people. It's like a forest that has been chopped down, and all that's left is a field of stumps. And Isaiah is saying, but there's hope because out of the stump, a green shoot is going gonna, is gonna to spring up a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Okay, who is Jesse? Well, Jesse was the father of King David, right? And so it doesn't say that, it's a, that, that he's coming to be a shoot from David, because that would mean that the Messiah that we're looking for is another Solomon, right? It says a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which means we're looking for another David, another great king. But then it says that he who's coming to be a king would be, verse 10, the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse. So a a branch from the stump of Jesse is somebody who comes after Jesse. But verse 10 says he's the root of Jesse, so he precedes Jesse. He both comes after Jesse and was before Jesse. And what that means is that the Messiah who brings God's peace to our world is not merely a physical descendant of Jesse. He is not merely another man. Yes, uh, he is another David. He comes as another king to lead his people, but he is not merely a man because he pre-existed the king from whom he descends. He is the pre-existent one. And that's exactly how John describes Jesus in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Before David, before Jesse, before the patriarchs, before Adam and Eve, before the creation of the world, he existed. Jesus was with God, and he was God. And because he is the one who created our world, he has the power to transform our very nature. This is the one who comes into our world at Christmas. This is the one that we remember at Advent. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, who existed before Jesse, is the one who comes into our world and is born of a virgin. He grows up living a life of perfect peace. And because he lives a life of perfect peace in the midst of a corrupt and fallen world, such perfection threatened the political, religious, cultural powers of his time, and so they colluded to execute him. On the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for our sin. On the cross, Jesus was torn apart in order to put us back together. On the cross, Jesus experiences the anguish and separation from God the Father so that you and I might experience peace, wholeness, shalom. And Having died on the cross, he raises from death three days later, ascending into heaven where he now rules over all things until he comes again at his second advent, to which we continue to look forward at which point he will fully implement the peace that he has already purchased with his life. Amen. Amen. So what does that mean for us now? How does Jesus' advent give us peace? And what would it look like for us to embody that peace in our world? Well, first I think we have to understand that there, if we were to live by that Advent story, there are some things for us to take seriously about the way that we live. Uh, But there's also a a much larger story that we need to make part of our own story. So uh, firstly, we have to understand that, that this calls forth a response from us. We have to understand, I think, that there's an order of operations at work here Just as I already said that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God has made peace between you and himself in Christ. And because you are at peace with Christ, we must be at peace with one another. We we can't look at our world and say the world is a mess without looking at the church and saying, but what about us? There's no hope for this world There's no hope for peace to happen in this world until it happens in the church. We point our world to the one in whom peace is found by living as a community of peace. And let me just say that in many ways you are doing this. You are doing this, but it's also not something that we do once and move on from it forever. We become people of peace by being with the Prince of Peace. We become people of peace by spending time with Jesus. And so part of our life together is about practicing repentance, and it's about encouraging one another to practice spiritual disciplines so that we might be with Jesus, so that we increasingly bring the presence of Jesus into our world. Part of our response is is in what we do. But I think there's an even larger part than just what we actually do, the behaviors that would um, indicate a gospel response to this passage. I think a bigger, even bigger part of our response is that we live according to a larger story. There is, um, how does peace happen typically in our world? Whether it's peace between Um, I don't know, friends that have been at odds. Uh, How does peace happen in a family that has had conflict over time? How does peace happen between nations that have been at war? Well, it happens by sitting around tables and negotiating. And it, it happens by one party being willing to give in and it happens by another party being willing to concede something in response. But the peace that Isaiah predicts here looks totally different. Advent is about God inviting us into a larger story. It's a larger story where God's arrival in our midst brings peace that just overwhelms the violence of our world and the violence in our hearts. Like many of you I'm sure uh, as we approach Christmas our family has this tradition of watching some of our favorite Christmas movies every year. And uh, there's one movie that this last week I uh, introduced my older kids to. And it's not your typical Christmas story. There's no, you know, Cousin Eddie showing up in the motorhome or anything like that. Um, it, it, it's, it's honestly, it's a pretty dark movie called The Children of Men, uh, based on a, actually a book by P.D. James with the same title. And The Children of Men is a story about a dystopian future where the human race has become infertile and nobody knows why. And for 27 years, no baby has been born on earth. And uh, disillusionment has set in. Many people have given up the will to live while others grapple for power, while still others look for comfort in whatever they can find to distract themselves from the awful reality that the human race is plunging toward its own demise. Uh, Peace has evaporated from most countries. Wealthy countries have closed their borders uh, in order to try to protect themselves. Refugees are being rounded up and placed in camps. It's a really dark picture. And into the darkness and hopelessness of this world, suddenly there's a young woman who is discovered to be pregnant and every faction wants to get their hands on her, and she's on the run, and finally, hiding in a refugee camp, she gives birth to a child. And then they bring the baby out onto the street, and in the midst of the conflict, the baby cries, and it's like the world takes a breath, and conflict subsides, and there is peace, as everyone quietly beholds with wonder this baby that has been born, this baby that offers hope, this baby who will change the world. P.D. James is a Christian. She was trying to invent a story that would retell the wonder of Advent. And that's what we're doing here this morning as well. Advent is about the arrival of one who comes into our world, and the world either ignores him or the world turns and catches its breath at the one who brings the peace of God, the shalom of God, into our world. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the beauty of your work, the glory veiled in uh, your coming and Jesus we pray that as we in this season remember your arrival in our midst that its strangeness would strike us again so that we might see your peace as not just good feelings it's not just a um, change of pace in the midst of a hectic time of the year but that you are coming into the world to make all things right. We now live in the time between uh, your first coming and your second when you will return and finish the work that you began. And so we pray that you would enable us to live as witnesses here in this time in between. That you would fill us with hope so that we might be people of peace in the midst of the darkness of this world. We pray Jesus in your name. Amen.